St. Paul's letter to the Romans is, by most people's estimate, his uh, theological masterpiece and well worth studying, but you can't do it in snippets. And unfortunately, this reading tonight is a snippet. So I've uh, not asked Patrick, but I'm spending about the next hour and 45 minutes with you. So if you need to go turn the microwave off or turn the oven off, uh, we'll be fine. Just turn the lights off when I leave. Yes, Patrick, I will. I, I think we have an automatic end time no matter what. But chapters 6 and 7 are worth thinking about and maybe trying to figure out why he casts them the way he does, why St. Paul writes the way he does. You know, the church in Rome, uh, no one knows exactly who started it. Uh, we can be pretty sure that St. Peter did not go there and start the church. Uh, that's a whole other class that I could teach some other night. But if he had been there and had been already installed as the Bishop of Rome in the mid-50s, 55 uh, in the first century, it would seem to me that St. Paul wouldn't have bothered to write such a letter. He would have simply gone and said, hello, St. Peter, good to be here. St. Paul arriving now just to uh, kind of sit and listen. But in fact, he doesn't mention him. And so who started it, how it got organized, and where it came from, no one knows. One theory about the church in Rome is that it may have actually been started by Christians who were converted on the day of Pentecost. You'll remember in the book of Acts, there is reference to people from Rome being among those who were present. And one of the theories is maybe some of them heard the word of the Lord and were created, were converted rather on the day of Pentecost and went home and began the evangelism that built up this church. Uh, no one knows for sure. But St. Paul knew that he wanted to go there and he was writing ahead to say, I'm looking forward to coming. He probably intended to make it a base for evangelism of the West. He had fully evangelized the, the eastern part of the, of the Roman Empire had worked as headquarters in Ephesus and in Antioch very effectively, and he needed a Western base, and many scholars think that his goal may have been to go to Rome and set up shop there and begin the next phase of his evangelism work from there. But nevertheless, he writes this letter, and in it, he is focused on the gospel of grace, He's focused on explaining the freedom of Christianity not to sin freely and do as we please and rely on God's grace to cover it, but rather to live a whole different way of life that comes about because of making a complete break with the way of sin. And in chapters 6 and 7, he's spending a lot of time trying to emphasize this complete break with sin. One commentator that I read on this said his whole point is to get people to adopt a way of life that can be described as absolute moral spotlessness. Does that make you uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable because I know my life is anything but absolute moral spotlessness. But that is the ideal, that is the pattern, that is the expectation that St. Paul is holding out in these two chapters. And to make his point, he spends a lot of time with images that are related to baptism. And he can do that because the church that he's writing to, a young church, 
probably no more than 15 years old at the, at the most, about 15 years old, it's full of people who have been baptized as adults and remember their baptisms. Unlike most of us Episcopalians today, most of us being baptized as children or as infants, we don't have much of a clear member, uh, remembrance. But if those were baptized as an adult are receiving his letter, and he talks about you were once this and now you're that, you died with Christ, you were buried in Christ in baptism, which is how the sixth chapter starts out, they would remember that. They would remember images of light and darkness. They would remember coming into the church meeting place in the dark and being submerged in water, like being actually buried and threatened with death and pulled out to the new life of Christ, the new life of grace. So he speaks about that. He uses four main images in chapters 6 and 7. we got two of them in the reading tonight. Four main images. The first one is about being buried with Christ in baptism and being raised to new life with him. That's chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, if you want to look at that uh, after the sermon ends in an hour or two. You will be able to find it there. We start tonight with verse 12, where he says things about his second main image. And that second main image is deserting the service of one king and going and offering yourself to the service of another. And the language he uses is military language. He talks about uh, offering your members for service of righteousness. It's as if he's recognizing that in the world there are two recruiters. There's a recruiter for the king of sin and a recruiter for the king of righteousness. And he's saying, you Christians have been recruited away from service to the kingdom of sin into serving the king of righteousness instead. And so he says, now you're going to offer your members, your your bodily wits, your arms, your legs, your eyes, your mouth, your mind. You're going to offer that to the service of righteousness and truth and grace and mercy in the same way that while you were serving that other king, you offered it to all kinds of things that you would never think of doing now. You're going to act like men, he says, and and like people who have been raised to new life. And as a result, you're changing your loyalties. He says this again in Colossians in the very first chapter. He says, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, he, He has this idea of radical switch, radical break, complete break with the past, and an expectation of that very uncomfortable phrase, absolute moral spotlessness. Then, after just a couple of verses, he moves on to the third of his great images, and here it gets a little complicated. I think this may be one of those passages that C.H. Dodd had in mind when he says it's not so much what he says, it's what he means, because today we would never write a letter and talk about becoming a slave of this or that. It's language that has changed in meaning. And even St. Paul, as he wrote it, he says, you know, I'm only using this because it's something you will understand. And we should understand that the congregation in Rome, that church in Rome, was composed of some free men and some slaves. It was the fact of the Roman Empire that a huge percentage of the population were slaves and did not enjoy the freedom of movement and the freedom of opportunity, the freedom of choice 
that we take pretty much for granted in our country. So he writes in those terms, and they would know, because if you are the slave of anything, you are absolutely obedient to it, or else there is no freedom there. But he even sets it up that Christians become slaves of righteousness without choice. He says you can't even think about, as a, as a Christian, you can't even think about the things you used to do, let alone do them. <laughs> Alas, I wish it were true. We do think about them, and we do do them, and we'll get to that before this sermon is over. But he uses that as his third great image, the image of a change of ownership. And he says in another of his letters, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And we were bought by Jesus with the price of his blood. So there is, it's, it's not an altogether inept image, although it's not one that would be very popular in many places today. The third, the final one is number four. That actually you have to get into chapter seven to get it. It's the first five, six, seven verses of chapter seven where he talks in terms of marriage. And he says, you change your marriage partner or you can when your spouse dies. And what he's saying is that we die to our marriage to sin, our marriage to the law, if you will, I think is the way he actually puts it. We die to that, and that makes us free to rise and choose a new spouse. And we choose Jesus. And he writes about marriage and the meaning of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, where he talks about the union between Christ and his church being symbolized in the union of a lasting and committed faithful marriage. So those are his four images. An image of being buried and raised with Christ in baptism. An image of deserting one king and going to serve another one instead. And an image of change of ownership in a slave-like situation. And finally, a change of marriage partner because one has died and it makes us free to make this new choice and live a whole different way. And all of that is designed to encourage these Romans to live this spotless, ideal life of moral, moral and straight living. The absolute moral spotlessness, as one of the commentators calls it. Now that becomes difficult because we have all of the desire, we have all of the greatness of, of uh, grace to help us, we have the mercy, we have the loving faithfulness of God, and yet, sin seems to come knocking. And of course, the next part of chapter 7 takes this on. And that's where uh, we'll hear some of that in Sunday's uh, readings. And we won't hear it until next Wednesday night, but whoever's preaching next, next Wednesday night is going to pick up on this idea of how difficult it is to live the moral life because of the things we drag around from the old way that we can't easily get rid of. But those those Romans were being exhorted to a moral perfection not because of what they were to be afraid of, not because of what they were afraid God might do to them, but because of what God has already done for them in Jesus Christ. We have been called to make a complete break with the past. Our repentance for our sins, our recognition of our sins, is not because we're afraid of what God will do to us. It's because of what we have done to him by not, not being afraid of him as a judge, but by being ashamed because of our injury to the one who loves us and whom we love in return. Repentance 
and the moral life based on love and the damage we do to it by our sin is a whole different thing than living in fear of what happens if you break the law. Christians have made a break with the life of fear and taken up a life of love, and with it comes the obligations of faithfulness, the obligations of marriage, the obligations of obedient service, the obligations of recognizing, recognizing the Lordship of Christ and seeing the living God alive in us through Jesus Christ in our baptisms. St. Paul had a lot on his mind. We should have the same on our minds too. But remember that we are people called to spotless moral perfection, but we have a lover who understands when it doesn't work out. Amen.